If you please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 76. Just to remind you, the, the sermon series plan is that go through a chapter of Job and then we will step away momentarily to, to look at a psalm and then go back to Job. So, Lord willing, this week we will um, have here Psalm 76 and then next week it will be a sermon on Job chapter 17. But God's word for us this morning is Psalm 76 and hear God as he speaks to us here from this psalm. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Seems that there are many in Christian circles today who are embarrassed by God. Situation is something like being at a social event with someone who doesn't have good manners. When you're at a wedding or funeral, as just some examples, there is a certain level of behavior that is expected. Suppose a friend of yours showed up at one of these events, a wedding or funeral, dressed to go to the beach. And this friend walks right up to the other guests and introduces himself or herself as though nothing is wrong. What would be your response? Maybe you wouldn't say anything outwardly, but I'm certain that at least inside you would feel embarrassed for your friend. You would want to crawl into a hole for your friend. But I'm amazed at how often this is the kind of response that people have to the God of the Bible. Be sure people are not embarrassed by everything about God. They certainly respect him for his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his kindness, his patience, etc. The problem is when we deal with God's wrath, when we deal with his anger, when we think of God as judge. People are just plain uncomfortable with the God of justice who judges and who punishes human beings in wrath. In a past issue of Table Talk, there is an article by R.C. Sproul Jr. entitled, Ashamed of Wrath, so very relevant to what I've just just pointed out. Um, And in this article, he says this, he says, no one in his right mind would admit to it, but it is there nonetheless. The church is full of people who are embarrassed by God. Sure, there are parts of him about which we are terribly proud. We are so eager to let the world know about the love of God that we assure his enemies he loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives, though God has not so promised. We are are pleased to announce his compassion, his grace, his wisdom, and his sympathy. When we open our Bibles, however, we find all manner of things that God does right out in the open where everyone can see. 
his judgment, his holiness, his purity, his jealousy, and his wrath are all blowing in the wind like so much dirty laundry. And the strange thing to us is that he seems to be proud of these things. No, that's not strange. What is strange is that we who say we love him are ashamed of those things about which he is proud. End quote. So Psalm 76 reveals to us something of what God is like. Without apology, the psalm has as its theme the judgment of God. And the psalm begins by answering some implied questions, such as where do I go to find out about God? To find out things like who he is and what he is like. Where can I find a true knowledge of God? And then the psalm begins with a statement that answers these questions. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. So this opening statement of our psalm is telling us that the God of the Bible, the, the creator God, the true God, the one and only true and living God is not known by everyone in every place. This opening statement is an exclusive statement that says to people in the psalmist's day that if you want to know the true God, you must go to Judah and Israel. If you want to have a true knowledge of God, you must seek that knowledge from the traditions, from the religious ceremonies, from the Old Testament scriptures of the Jews. And what is implied is that if your beliefs about God are different than those of Judah, then you don't have the truth that your religious beliefs are wrong. And you can imagine the protests that must have arisen from Israel's neighbors as they heard such statements, if they ever got wind of them. These neighbors were religious people who had their own gods, they had their own ways of worship, and they were, as far as anyone knows, sincere and outwardly pious people, religious people. What gave the Jews the right to discredit the religious beliefs of their neighbors? Can you imagine the angry protests? Probably words something like, you mean to say the Jews have a corner on God? Do you really mean to say that all of our beliefs are wrong while yours are right? What gives you the right to think that you alone know God and the way to heaven? I can imagine the the cry of Israel's neighbors was something like, this is hateful intolerance. That's at least to put it in the words of our day. They surely accused the Jews of being prideful to think that they alone would know God. But why were the Jews making such a bold statement? Why is this found here? Is this because the Jews were or thought of themselves to be a superior race of people? Is this opening statement here a boast? No, far from it. The psalmist is correct in this opening statement because God revealed himself to the Jews. And the record of this revelation is what the Old Testament is all about. And so what I am saying in answer to that question, where do we go to, to, to find out about God, who he is like, um, who he is and, and what he is like, where, where, is he, where is he known? Well, we need to know where, when, and to whom God has revealed himself. That's the answer. That's the key. And you see, among the cultures and races of man, There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of different ideas about the identity of God and the way of salvation. And with so much variation and with so many beliefs contradicting each other, how can we know who has the truth? We can't observe God. We can't 
describe what he is like just on the basis of our own ideas that, that arise in our head. And so everyone is incapable of arising, of arriving on his own at a true knowledge of God and of spiritual matters. Really, the only way that we can have a true knowledge of God is if he chooses to reveal himself to us, which is exactly what he has done. And in the time of the psalmist, God had revealed himself to Israel and to Judah. He had not revealed himself to other nations. And so these other nations did not know God. Now today the situation has changed because God has continued to reveal himself over the ages. And today, in addition to the revelation received by Israel and Judah as recorded in the Old Testament, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And this revelation has been recorded for us in the New Testament scriptures. What's also changed is the people to whom God has chosen to reveal himself. In the Old Testament era of our psalmist, God revealed himself to the Jews. Now there were other people outside of the Jews who came to know the true God, but they did so only if they were to come in contact with the Jews and with their scriptures. But now in the Old Testament era, God has chosen to reveal himself through the proclamation of his word to all nations all over the world. No longer is God's revelation given through the one nation of Israel. And yet, some things have not changed. Today, our God is the same God worshipped by Old Testament Israel. So that we need to clearly understand that the God of the New Testament is not a new God. He's not a different God than that of the Old Testament. He's not a God who has changed in some way. Um, It is true that as New Testament believers, we understand him more fully, but he is the same God. What has also remained the same over the ages is the unpopular truth that only those who know God, as he has revealed himself, know the true God, which means that only those who know Jesus Christ in a saving relationship, a relationship of faith, um, only those who trust in Christ know God. Only those who believe in the God revealed in the Old and New Testaments believe in the true God. Only those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ believe in the true religion. Those who believe in other things do not believe the right things. This is not a popular view with today's world, which tries to assure everyone that no matter what you believe about God in the way of salvation, your beliefs are good, they are true, and they will deliver you to heaven one day. You and I ought not to be interested in people's opinions and people's ideas about God. We are to be people of revelation. We must be people who are interested in what God reveals, in what he tells us about himself. This is one of the stands that is taken by the Reformed faith over against many other churches. We emphasize the need to believe in God exactly as he has revealed himself in the Bible. It's important that you and I not form a God after our own thoughts or after our own imaginations. Uh, You must not let your emotions dictate the kind of God that you will believe in. You and I must let God be God. And we are to submit to what he says about himself. And if you don't like it, then you are to repent for not accepting and loving him as he is. And whether you approve or not, in Psalm 76, we have a revelation of God as a God of wrath, as a God of judgment. This is how God reveals himself and his justice and his wrath, rather than being something to hide in embarrassment 
are actually a part of what makes him great. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. This is where at the time of the, of the uh, psalmist, uh, God was to be found. And uh, what has he done to show himself great? How has he shown himself to be judged? That is what we go on to see here in this psalm. Um, this brings us really to our second point this morning. What has God done? And verse, uh, even verse 2 fits into this theme of God is judged, though it may not appear so at first, um, and especially in our English translations. But verse 2 reads, His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Salem is here a shortened form of the name uh, of the city of Jerusalem. Salem means peace. And Jerusalem means city of peace. And Zion is also a name closely associated with Jerusalem. Though Zion refers, if we want to focus on the very narrow definition of Zion, it refers to that mountain within the city limits of Jerusalem where the tabernacle and later temple were found. And so what we are being told here in general in verse 2 is that Jerusalem is God's dwelling place. Uh, Zion is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept that symbolized God's presence with his people. Zion is where the people of God would meet with God in worship, where it's where they would bring their sacrifices. So what does this verse then have to do with this theme of God as judge? Well, I I draw your attention, first of all, to what the text literally says in the Hebrew. It says, in Salem also is his lair. So Jerusalem is pictured in, as God's den, the lair of a lion, which is why some commentators have titled this psalm actually the Lion of Judah. And when you think of a lion, I don't think you typically think of an animal that's cuddly and loving and warm, but rather you think of something that is to be feared. You think of a a dangerous, powerful beast of prey. The lion, right, is the king of beasts. He is something to be reckoned with. And so to think of God as a lion on Mount Zion, he's dwelling there, brings to mind a God of fierce wrath, a God of power who is to be feared. And then verse 3 carries this thought forward by applying this figure to how God has attacked and has destroyed uh, uh, um, Jerusalem's enemies. It says his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion, There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Essentially, this lion of Judah destroyed those who came into his territory. So we'd have you to ponder the question, what is meant by Jerusalem, or what is the significance of Jerusalem as the city of peace? How does Jerusalem get this peace? These are things to be pondered. And uh, first of all, Jerusalem was a city of peace in a political sense, only to the extent that God preserved her from the attacks of enemies. And what we have in the second part of this psalm in verses 4 through 6 is a recounting of an incident when God acted in wrath against one of Israel's enemies. We read, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil they, they, they sunk into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. We're not told in great detail what particular event is in mind. 
Uh, we're not told exactly what happened in, in a lot of detail, but there's enough here to make us think of that incident when the invading armies of Sennacherib were destroyed by the angel of the Lord, which is recorded in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and in Isaiah 36 and 37. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this psalm, he summarizes the story of the destruction of Sennacherib this way. He says, in the year 701 BC, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invaded Judah and encircled Jerusalem. Hezekiah was Judah's king. Sennacherib sent a message to him reminding him of all the cities and nations he had already subdued. They all had their gods, but their gods had not saved them, he said. Gozan, Haran, Resif, and the people of Eden all fell before him. Why should the Jews expect their God to deliver them? Why not surrender now? Hezekiah went into the temple and spread this communication before the Lord. It is true, he said, the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. This was a believing prayer, and God answered Hezekiah. He sent the prophet Isaiah with an announcement that the mighty army of Sennacherib would be overthrown, and the king would return to Assyria as he had come. That night, we are told, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there, end quote. So to get back again to the idea of Jerusalem as this city of peace, it was a city of peace inasmuch as the Lord used his wrath to subdue those enemies who sought her destruction. Again and again, attacks against Jerusalem were the occasion for God's wrath and power to be unleashed in order to preserve his people. It was because God judged his enemies that Jerusalem had political peace. And second, Jerusalem or Zion was a picture of the spiritual peace between God and his people, especially symbolized through the sacrificial system of the tabernacle first, and then later the temple that spoke of how through atonement made for sin, the sinner and a holy God could live together in a covenant relationship of fellowship, of peace, and of friendship. And what I would draw to your attention is the fact that peace, in both the political and spiritual sense, are, dire- are directly related to God's wrath. I've already referred to this, how this is true in the political sense. God's people, the city of Jerusalem, would not have lasted except that God, from time to time, would pour out his wrath upon Israel's enemies. Many times, enemies arose who sought to overthrow the nation, and especially the capital city of Jerusalem, the God of uh, of some people's imagination, who is never angry, who is never wrathful, would have just left Israel to be hung out to dry by her enemies. Of course, it was God's love that compelled him to stand up against the enemies of his people. It was God's love that compelled him to be angry and to march against those who hated him and his people. And consider how God's wrath is also related to spiritual peace. The need for this, this, this spiritual peace is because we are by nature rebels against God. 
And we deserve God's wrath to burn against us because of our sin. If God were not a God of wrath, it would mean that by nature he's not opposed to sin, which would mean in turn he's not holy, that he's not righteous. It's his perfect goodness that compels him to hate all that is impure and evil, even when it is found in his creatures. We like it, do we not? We're okay, we're comfortable with, we, we even rejoice when God's wrath burns against our enemies. And we welcome his wrath in that kind of a context, do we not? Suddenly we see the value of his Wrath protecting us, just like the wrath that protected God's people from Egypt and Assyria and many other enemies. And yet, you and I must never forget that we deserve wrath because of our sin. And it's when we think of ourselves meeting up with God's wrath and judgment that suddenly, then, we don't want it anymore. But God is not only a God of wrath, he is merciful to sinners. And what is ironic is that it is exactly through God's wrath that we receive his mercy because God poured out his wrath upon his son at Calvary. And this is how sinners are able to have peace with God. Jesus paid the debt of sin. His dying the cruel death of the cross was because he was taking the punishment that our sins deserve, the the punishment of the sins of his people. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, his work is applied to your account. Receiving and resting upon Christ alone as your Savior, there is no wrath for, uh, for, for you to endure. And when your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. You are received as God's child. He bestows his love and spiritual blessings upon you. And so really to deny God's wrath is to deny the reason for why God's son suffered. To deny the suffering of Jesus would then be to cast aside your only hope of salvation. It was this exact wrath that was in fact pictured by the sacrificial system of the tabernacle and temple. The offering of sacrifices upon the altar of burnt offering, that was a ceremony with spiritual meaning that had to do directly with God's wrath. The killing and the burning of the animal sacrifice was a type, it was a picture of God's wrath against sin. And so the wrath of God, it's not pretty, but it is real. And it has been used to accomplish good and holy purposes. We have only to look at the work of our Savior to see that. So then having faced the reality of God's judgments, what is to be our response to God as judge? Well, verses 7 through 10 are verses in which the psalmist reflects on God's wrath against the Assyrians. And in these verses are summarized some of the things that you and I should know about God's judgment. First of all, that God's anger and wrath are real. Um, They should be reckoned with. There are a lot of things that you and I naturally fear, fear of failure, fear of being unable perhaps to make ends meet, a fear of ridicule, fear of sickness and dying, uh, perhaps a fear of a sinking economy, uh, perhaps a fear of war with other nations. There are things that concern us. But if there is someone or something that ought to be feared above all of these things, It is the fear of offending our holy God. The psalmist writes, You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? People have such a casual attitude 
as they think of approaching God. They, they engage in prayer and in various forms of worship, and they take God's name upon their lips without hardly giving it a thought. There, there's too much today, this attitude that God is easygoing when it comes to sin. It's thought to be old-fashioned if a preacher were to preach a fire and brimstone sermon. And this can only be because they've lost the concept of God's anger against sin. They've failed to reckon with God's holiness. What about us? What about you? Have you taken stock of the reality that your sins, that our sins provoke God to anger? Have you taken stock of the fact that if your sins are not covered by the blood of Jesus through faith, that you are doomed to face God's horrible wrath? Let's not sugarcoat the reality of God's wrath. Let's not sugarcoat the anger that sin arouses in him. Without Christ, it would be a horrible future that would await us. Because our God does not tolerate sin. He hates it. And he will strike down unrepentant sinners with a vicious anger. The biblical God we believe in is not like the evangelical God of so many today who just equally loves everybody and we are told wants to save everybody can't, though, apparently save everybody. He can't do what he wants to do and is apologetic, ultimately, about sending people to hell. That's not the God of the Bible. God's wrath is something, secondly, uh, God's wrath is something that the unbelieving world will not be able to avoid as much as they would like to ignore it. Verse 8 speaks of the fact that when God decides to judge sinners, they will be judged. Uh, They will have nothing to say. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. Again, to quote from James Montgomery Boyce, he writes, quote, One of the most objectionable characteristics of people who do wrong is that they never seem to admit it and then shut up. On the contrary, they are always making excuses for their wrong behavior, trying to get in the last word of self-serving, self-justifying explanation. There will be no final words from sinners at the last judgment. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3.19, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. End quote. And then third, God's wrath always in the end is the means by which he will deliver his people from his and our enemies. Verse 9, when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. It's really the same point that was being raised earlier when I spoke of how God's judgments and wrath are what delivered Israel from her enemies, as well as what has delivered God's people of all ages from the spiritual enemies of sin and death and the devil as God's wrath, as his judgment, was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. Wrath is the means by which he delivers those who are the objects of his love. The psalmist speaks of the humble, literally the oppressed, because God is often merciful to those who are afflicted. Spurgeon writes of this, The ruler of men has a special eye towards the poor and despised. He makes it his first point to right all their wrongs. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They have little of it now, but their avenger is strong, and he will surely save them. He who saves his people is the same God who overthrew their enemies. End quote. 
And then fourth, God is glorified. God is glorified as his wrath responds to and overcomes man's wrath. Verse 10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Our psalm specifically speaks of man's wrath, which would be man's anger against God. We are reminded that man by nature hates God. We, if apart from the grace of God, we would hate God. We would hate God's kingdom. We would hate God's people. Evil men hate God's sovereignty over their lives. And this anger is expressed often through the oppressing of God's servants. But in the end, God is praised because God uses the anger of evil men for good purposes in, his, uh, in, in, in the lives of his people and in his kingdom. Through persecution, the church is actually made stronger. Through unjust oppression, as Christians, we are forced to rely more on Christ, and so our faith grows. And furthermore, all the schemes of the wicked against the church of God are only the occasion for God to demonstrate his power and judgment in the destruction of his enemies. And of course, there is the ultimate uh, example of all of this when evil men put to death the Son of God, thinking that they were killing God when in fact they were bringing about the, the salvation of God's people. The Bible is clear that though man rises up in opposition against God, God laughs, Psalm 2. Right? The... the the opposition of man, it's, it's a joke for man to think that he can oppose God. And man's wrath is nothing compared to God's wrath. The second part of verse 10 seems to say that after man has exhausted the supply of his wrath, God will gird himself with what amounts to an inexhaustible supply and sinners will be condemned. Or perhaps the idea is simply that uh, there will just be this, this remnant of, of uh, of wrath that the Lord can, can just put on around his waist because man's wrath is as nothing. But of course, there is the other side of God's judgment. I haven't talked about a whole lot this, this, uh, this morning, but the judgment of acquittal, the, the judgment of justification. When God, for the sake of his son, forgives and welcomes all those who repent and who take refuge in Christ's saving work. So God is glorified by both his electing of some to salvation as well as by his choosing to leave others in their sin. Romans 9, read earlier, makes clear that God's not embarrassed by his wrath against unrepentant sinners. He's glorified through it. Romans 9, 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Think of the opposition of Pharaoh, thinking he could stand up against the God of heaven and earth. All of his rebellion was just the occasion for God to show that man is nothing. The enemies of God are as nothing before him. So what is to be your response to God's wrath and judgment? Rather than rejecting it, Rather than insisting God's not like that, you and I must submit to who he is, to, to whom he has, to the way in which he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. Rejoice in how God's wrath and judgment is intimately involved in your salvation. 
And when you understand that, you will, as the psalmist does in verse 11, respond with actually by, by having a renewed commitment to serving God. It says, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. God is a God who is to be feared. He is to be the God of your life, your master, your Lord. And if you've been saved from God's wrath through the blood of Jesus, then you must bring to God gifts of allegiance and obedience. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus also said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's Luke six forty six. If you refuse to bow in faith and obedience before Jesus Christ, then be warned. You will be judged. And in fact, the psalm ends on this note. Verse 12 says of God who, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Viewing those kings, in particular the evil kings of the nations around them, ungodly people. And so I urge you, I invite you, I plead with you as an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn to the Lord while he may be found. Right now he is a merciful Savior to all who turn to him. By turning to Christ in repentance, by looking to him for the righteousness that you need, you will, be fi- you will find mercy and you will be one of those whom the Lord protects, the one whom he saves through judgment. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we pray that always our view of you would be in line with what you have revealed in Scripture Lord, we would never be embarrassed by even those characteristics that you reveal that are um, maybe not always ones that we at first want to accept. Um, Father, may we submit to your word. May we submit to who you are. And Lord, we thank you for showing us this morning how even as a God of wrath, that brings glory and honor to you. Lord, even if we don't fully understand these things, may we still bow our knee to what you have revealed about yourself to us in your word. We thank you, Father, that as your people we can expect your wrath to be unveiled against our our enemies, to protect us. We thank you that your wrath was unleashed against uh, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of us. It, It grieves us that the Lord had to go through all of that suffering, and yet, Father, that's our salvation. And we thank you for your willingness to send your son, for his willingness to suffer in that way. Some, the one who had committed no sin, suffering for our sins. Father, we thank you for that wrath that he bore. And uh, Father, we do pray that now in the, day, in the day of salvation, in this day of the gospel, that there would be many who would come to trust in you, that they would place themselves uh, in that refuge that you have provided in, in the Lord Jesus, your son, that, Lord, they might escape your coming judgment, that they would instead be able to experience the joys of uh, the judgment of justification, uh, of being, Lord, given that perfect record of their Savior, of being declared righteous in your sight. Lord, uh, we pray that many would take refuge in Christ, and we know that that also will bring glory and honor to your name. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name.